Thanks very much to all of you who uh, stuck it out for the whole day. I hope you found it to be an interesting and worthwhile uh, conference. I'll be back in just a moment to, uh, to offer some closing remarks. But right now, I want to um, uh, introduce uh, Judge Kevin Sharp, uh, retired Judge Kevin Sharp, uh, from Tennessee. It's a real pleasure and an honor. Um, really thank you for being here. Um, He's much more interesting than I could ever be, so I'm going to make the introduction very short. But uh, Judge Sharp was a federal district court judge in the Middle District of Tennessee, was appointed or nominated to the bench uh, by President Obama, served for six years, including three of those as chief judge of the district. Um, before that was a litigator in private practice. Before that was a communication specialist on a P3 Orion. My cousin's a, she's a crypto uh, in the Navy, so uh, um, thank you for your service. Uh, the uh, one other factoid actually is interesting. I didn't even know this until after uh, Judge Sharp had accepted our uh, invitation to, uh, to come and speak. One of my colleagues, uh, former colleagues at the Institute for Justice, uh, Bob McNamara, actually tried an economic liberty case in front of Judge Sharp. It was our only jury trial at the Institute for Justice. Um, unfortunately, lost it, but uh, uh, that's what you get with juries, uh, a little bit of unpredictability, which is maybe a good thing. Um, I became aware of Judge Sharp when I listened to a podcast that he did uh, that was one of the best podcasts I've heard probably in the last couple of years, maybe ever. It was extraordinarily poignant, and it described his experience as a federal judge and particularly uh, what it feels like to have to hand out very severe uh, sentences uh, to people in your courtroom, uh, sentences that maybe um, you personally not only disagree with but feel like maybe um, um, something that you don't want to be involved with because they're unduly harsh um, and don't seem just under the circumstances. Um, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I was very touched and very moved by that podcast and immediately thought that he would make the um, a perfect keynote speaker for this event to uh, close out what, again, I hope has been a, an interesting and, and productive and worthwhile day for all of you. So, Judge Sharp, thank you so much for being here. All right, thank, thanks, Clark. You know, um, I said, uh, I, he asked me to do this, and I said, I w I'm happy to do it. Um, can you possibly give me the worst time slot you've got? Yes, we can. We're going to put you right before the reception. So you are what stands between the group and uh, a glass of wine. So I appreciate you all staying here um, and listening to me. As, as Clark said, I was on the bench six years, and I, do, I hear that I retired. Uh, I did not retire had not served long enough to retire, I stepped down. And I stepped down for several reasons, but, but um, the major reason is what I want to talk to you about today. Um, now, some, some of you, I, I've, I've watched this uh, from the closed circuit television, and, and I recognize that a lot, not everyone, but a lot of, of you are lawyers. And you uh, have been in federal courts and understand um, that being a federal judge is not a bad gig. Um, <laughs> Uh, I went on the bench in my 40s. Um, I was always the youngest guy in the room. Um, and I was always the funniest guy in the room. It's great being the funny guy when you're a judge. I, I resigned my commission, and all of a sudden I wasn't nearly as funny, um, at least as I thought I was. Uh, nobody was laughing anymore. Um, but, I, but I stepped down, and I did it for a couple of reasons. But you know, I did have friends call me and go, Kevin, you realize this is, this is a lifetime appointment, right? You don't have to step down. Um, but I felt like I did. I needed to do that. Um, and before I tell you why and get into those reasons, I think it's, it's important to know a little bit more about me um, because it affected the prism through which I, I viewed the job and 
how I view other people, other citizens and human beings. Um, I'm originally from Memphis. Uh, if any of you have been to Memphis, it's a river city like most river cities. They can be a little tough, um, at times economically depressed, and this one certainly was. And my father was a, was a Memphis firefighter. Um, my mother started out selling World Book encyclopedias door to door because after you sold enough of them, you got a set. And that was the only way we were going to be able to afford a set of encyclopedias. And so um, not a particularly good student. I went to public schools, um, kind of, kind of um, wasn't the best student. And college was not in my future. What was in my future was uh, picking up a shovel and going to work at the oil refinery that's in Memphis. Um, picking up a baseball bat, literally. My job, if you remember, some of you may be too young to remember this, the days where you had full-service gas stations that then moved to self-service gas stations, but before you could pay at the pump. And so people were on the honor system to pay after they pumped their gas. Um, not everybody paid after they pumped their gas. And so I was hired to walk around the grounds with a baseball bat, basically walking up to pumps and going, you're going to pay for that, right? <laughs> Uh, yes, I am. Okay. Um, so, you know, so that's my job. Another job I had was at a car wash. And for those of you who were around in the 70s and saw that movie, uh, great movie, car washes are not that fun. They, they aren't like that. But, but in, in some ways, that movie was very realistic because it was uh, a bunch of adults who were working at these minimum wage jobs. You're going nowhere. It's, 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 hard, it's tiring, you, you spend your day wet and hoping that somebody gives you a tip. And it's one thing for me at 18 or 19 years old to do that. It's another thing for a guy who's 35 and this is the way he's going to feed himself and his family. And so these are the people that I was around and the people that I had contact with, the people that, um, you know, on breaks, I, I watched Smoking Dope in the back. Um, not so much at the oil refinery. That didn't happen there. A little too dangerous, but, but at the other places. Um, and so these were the people that I knew. These were the people that I grew up with. These are the people that I worked with. Now, I did decide I probably ought to put a little more effort into this. This is not really a, a career path. Um, and so I'm driving down the street one day, and I see a Navy recruiting station. Um, in a little shopping center, and I pull in, and I go, send me somewhere, anywhere. Just get me out of here. And um, they do that. <clears throat> um, I sign up, and I end up at a boot camp um, in, in, stationed with a P-3 squadron. We were sub-hunters. We hunted Soviet submarines. I'm 19 years old, no college education. But I'm, I'm one of about 15 crew members on a multi-million dollar aircraft flying off the coast of Vietnam chasing Soviet submarines. And as Clark mentioned, I'm the communications guy, which also means you are the crypto guy, which means I'm, I've got the codes. And all of a sudden, uh, I'm, I'm not just the, a 19-year-old kid uh, wiping the, the water off of your windshield coming out of the car wash. I, this is an important job. And I start seeing myself differently 
than I had before. And I see other people differently because I'm stationed in Hawaii, but out of Hawaii, I spend a year in the Philippines and I spend time in Okinawa and Japan and Alaska and Guam and Midway and a little island in the, uh, in the Indian Ocean called Diego Garcia. Uh, and from there, we, we chased submarines off the coast of Somalia. And I see these people who are um, stationed with me that are culturally different, and we come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, and, and it's just this mass of humanity that's been pulled from everywhere. And those are the people that I'm stationed with. And then you're in these different cultures and different countries. And I realize that although we're not speaking the same language and we've all grown up differently to a certain extent, that everybody's really so similar. Everybody's got the same kind of issues and the same problems and the same things they're worried about. And, and it's back to, to family and, and these issues. I'm going to fast forward through this. Um, so that I don't keep you here too long. But ultimately, I decide this is what I want to do is become a lawyer. And I get out of the Navy, go to, to undergrad, hadn't been, and then go to law school. Was fortunate enough to get into Vanderbilt Law School. And I practice law for the next 17 years until I get a call one day from the White House or the Justice Department asking me if I can come to the White House for an interview. They'd like to talk to me about being one of the new district court judges in the middle district of Tennessee. And so I do that and, and I go up, I have this, I have an interview. I won't bore you with all of that. Ultimately, um, the president nominates me. I have the support of our two Republican senators. It's, it's Bob Corker and, uh, they're Bob Corker and Lamar Alexander, opposite political party from me, but they support me and, and I have a floor vote and get unanimously confirmed. So I am a middle-of-the-road guy. I'm a former military. I'm a, I'm a God and country guy. Um, I have this perception of what it means to be an American. A lot of it developed in the military. Um, and that's who takes the bench in 2011. And I think, okay, now here, this is just another extension. I had also worked there in that 17 years for Congress for a little while. So I'd been in the other two branches of government and understood the importance of what we do and what they do in the judiciary. And I took this job very seriously. My experience had been as a civil litigator when I practiced law. I had no, except for you know, a law school class as a second year in, in CrimCon, um, I didn't have any experience. I think you talked about that earlier, right? A lot of the judges come on, you, you don't have a lot of criminal experience. But I will say this, no offense, sir, uh, but I've said this to the U.S. attorney and to the federal public defender in Nashville, criminal law is not difficult. The law is fairly simple, a lot simpler, more simple than, uh, you know, than the tax code or ERISA or some of the other things that I had done, which is not to say that it's not hard. It became the hardest thing that I did on the bench because as a, as a judge trying a civil case, ultimately it's about money. You know, 99.999% of the times it's about money. And I'll make a decision and, um, you know, there's a ruling. Somebody pays money. Somebody doesn't pay money. Here's, here's the judgment. And 
it may or may not make a difference. Maybe it gets paid. Maybe somebody files bankruptcy. You know, maybe they just walk out and go, you know, let's, instead of appeal it, let's work out something else. But in the criminal section, and the criminal portion of what I did, when I said judgment is imposed or sentence is imposed as stated, uh, somebody ended up in handcuffs. The marshals walked up and escorted somebody out of the room. And, and all of a sudden, you realize, wait a minute, these, these are liberties at stake. This is not money we're talking about. These are freedoms. And this becomes so much more important and weighty. Um, but then a couple of things happen. Early on, uh, I have a sentencing of a, of a young man. He's 27. His name is Antonio. And Antonio has been charged as a felon in possession of a firearm. And Antonio got to this point. His felonies were two armed robberies at 17 years old. Ten years now he's been charged as a felon in possession, but he had these two armed robberies at 17. And in the state system, they would have been charged or, or would have been counted as one crime. In the federal system, they were two crimes, although they, be, they happened the same night and, and within about a mile of each other. The way you count it under Tennessee state law, that's one crime. It's a continuation. Federal law, he had two. And so now he's got two armed robberies, and um, he can either plead guilty as, uh, as a juvenile and go to a juvenile detention facility. There was no option. Or he could plead guilty as an adult and get probation. So he pleads guilty as an adult, and he gets probation. Now we fast forward 17 or 10 years. He doesn't do drugs. He Really, he, he did what we all hope uh, a criminal defendant after their conviction and this, and this probation he's put on, we, he did what we hoped they would do. He gets a job. He has, um, you know, he's, he's has contact with his family. He doesn't do drugs. He doesn't drink. He's done everything he's supposed to do, but he's done one thing that he's not supposed to do, which is what happens with most, um, I, I was very surprised when I took the bench at the number of people who were armed and who are armed unlawfully, um, and he is one of them. But he's driving down the street one day. This I won't get too graphic, but he's in the car with his girlfriend, and his girlfriend, he and his girlfriend are um, engaged in activity which caused him to cross ever so slightly over the yellow line, which then caused the police who saw it to hit the blues and pull him over. And so he being the honest young man of 27 that he is, says, you know what, officer, I, I'm not drinking. I don't do drugs. I slid over the yellow line because my girlfriend here was performing oral sex on me. And so the police say, everybody out of the car. They suspect prostitution. Um, and they split them up, and they ask him questions and, and realize, nope, this really is his girlfriend. She knows him. They know things about each other. That's really what's going on. Okay going to let you go. Oh, by the way, mind if we search your car? And he says, no, go ahead. And under the front seat of the car is an unloaded pistol. And so now he's charged with being a felon in possession. And because of the prior crimes convicted as an adult, 
he's now looking at a mandatory 15 years. And I got his, I think most everybody, there was some talk earlier about pre-sentence reports, these PSRs, for those of you that don't know, it's put together by probation. It gives you everything that you should know, want to know about a criminal defendant what their past history is, what happened here, what their family life is like, all of this information, what their education is, what their jobs are. Um, and so I, I pick up his PSR. I'm a few days out. I pick up the PSR. I see I've got a sentencing coming up. And I'm looking at this thing thinking, this cannot be right. 15 years? How, you know, what are these mandatory minimums I'm starting to hear of? I didn't know what they were until I saw this. And that this, this cannot be right. And so I spent the next several days trying to figure out how do you get around mandatory minimums. I've got a great career clerk who can't be done. Um, not unless you, you know, you can do it. But you're going to be overturned in about 15 minutes by the Court of Appeals. It's mandatory. And um, so I did what I had to do. And I sentenced this young man to 15 years and thought, what are, in the world are we doing? Why? This is, this is not justice in any way, shape, or form. Why would we take this kid and you take away my ability to fashion a sentence? Because I've been to your courses. I know what a judge is supposed to do. I know what a judge is supposed to look at in determining how you fashion a sentence that is sufficient but not more harsh than necessary, which is the phrase that's used. It's sufficient but not more harsh than necessary to comply with the, with the purposes of why we sentence people and, and what we're trying to do. And, and this didn't do that in any way, shape, or form. We, what we had done was send a 27-year-old kid, no offense for those of you under 30, but uh, now that I'm over 50, I will call you kids. At least this guy was. He was a kid. And we're going to send him to prison for it with good behavior. He's still there for 13 years. There's no parole in the federal system. And what, so now what have we done except destroy this guy's life destroy the lives of children and, and those people around him, um, hurt the, is a minor factor, but hurt the employer who, who had an employee who showed up every day and went to work. And so you've just created, caused me to create this void that I, I had trouble understanding what we were doing. And I moved on. Um, to my, to my next cases and did those things that the judges are supposed to do. And, and then several years pass. Um, and I end up with another mandatory minimum case. And in this case, there was a, a, another kid, uh, 22 years old, who gets caught up with uh, a group of members of the Vice Lords who are running cocaine and crack through Middle Tennessee. This kid's name is Chris Young, and Chris is not a member of this gang. Chris is not involved, really, in the distribution of this cocaine. Chris has a, is a minor player. He wants to be a rapper, and one of the guys who's involved has a studio, and so he's, he finds himself on occasion hanging out with this guy, and oh, by the way, you know, Chris, can you sell some of this for me? Um, how about, you know, can you, can you go make some crack? Um, and they're called, for those of you who 
do some criminal work may know this already, but I did not, that they're called cookies, and you bake them in a Pyrex glass, and, and the cocaine with other mixtures of chemicals and put it in a microwave creates a little thin cookie in the bottom. And, and that becomes the crack that's then broken up and sold. Um, 30-ish um, people are indicted as part of this drug conspiracy, one of them being Chris Young, who's 22. And Chris is such a minor player in all of this. And really, the only reason I think he is arrested is because he happens to be at the gas station and he knows them, he knows the players, but the, but the DEA has decided we're, it's time to take down the ringleader of this. We've, we've got enough uh, wiretaps, we're gonna go ahead and take him down. Uh, and they decide the time and the place they're gonna do it. And Chris Young happens to be there, recognizes the leader, walks over to the car. Police had no idea he was gonna be there, was part of this. And um, he's arrested along with them and he's caught up in this and he's charged as part of the conspiracy. The only connection they really have to him is there are some wire, some tapes from the wiretaps where Chris is talking to the leader of this, of this gang and he, he's, he's called him because he can't figure out why the crack cooking is not working. He's not doing it right. He knows so little about this process. He, he doesn't know how to make crack. And so he calls the leader and says, you know, can you help me? And the leader finally gets frustrated and said, I'll just come over and do it myself. That's basically it. But Chris is 22 and they come to him and they say, we'll, we, you, can, you can plead guilty and we'll give you 12 years. Chris is 22 and he thinks, 12 years? No, I'm, I'm, I'm so minor in all of this. I'm, I'll, I'll go to trial. Um, his lawyer finally convinces him that's a bad idea because now they have charged you with an 851 and he's got, because he's got two prior drug convictions. One for less than half a gram of crack. It's about like a sugar packet of crack. So that's one of his prior uh, predicate crimes. And his lawyer convinces him, you don't want to go, you don't want to go to trial with this. Um, the, the penalty is too harsh. This is a mandatory life sentence. And so his lawyer goes back to the prosecutor and says, my guy's changed his mind. Let's make a deal. And the prosecutor said, she goes, he'll take the 12. I oh, hate that. That 12 was last week's price. This week's price is 22 years. And if you turn this down, next week's price is going to be higher. And so now you've got a 22-year-old who's thinking 22 years, that's a lifetime. Um, you want to give me life in prison, I'll go to trial. And 22 years is life. Now, right at 22, I think I probably thought the same thing. 20 years, that's forever. Now at 54, I go, 20 years, that flew by. I missed it. I don't know what happened that 22 years. And that's what he's thinking, that this is crazy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take my chances at trial. They'll see. Well, he went to trial. 
he was going to be convicted. He was always going to be convicted. You, you had him. But, but now he gets tagged with all, it's a conspiracy. Let's load everybody's drugs onto Chris Young. Um, only three people, by the way, of this 30 people, 30 person group went to trial. Everybody else pled guilty. Um, the three lowest members of this conspiracy went to trial. They all got life in prison, every single one of them. They were, they were the lowest players in this thing, and they got life. Um, and so Chris has tried and convicted, and there's, there's no way out of it. I've got now, he's, it's taken a few years to get there, but now he's about 26, 25 or 26, and I have zero choice but to sentence him to life in prison. For, for I, I, I get that you, there was a lot of drugs running through, but not by this kid and not by the other two kids who also decided to go to trial. But they all got life. And, and so here's Chris Young, who had grown up in the projects, did not know who his father was. His mother was a drug addict who was in and out of jail. He didn't, uh, didn't really have supervision. Uh, there were times where his mother had been arrested and removed, sent to jail, and nobody knew that he and his brother were in the house. And so, you know, electricity is cut off and water is cut off, and they have no money for food. They're eating out of garbage cans or asking other neighbors to give them food. Um, when, when they get tired of the way that they smell, they go and ask neighbors if they can take a shower. This is, this is how this kid grew up. His brother eventually, unclear as to whether he committed suicide or was murdered, but he's, he's it now. I can't consider any of that. I can't look at how he got here. I can only look at how was he charged? How was he charged? He was charged. He was convicted. It's, it's life. And he stood up there. They get to allocute. So a defendant before their sentence, do you have anything to say? Yes, I do. And he had worked for such a long time on this speech that he wanted to give, and it was very articulate. And, and he had such an in-depth knowledge of economics and philosophy and history that here was this 25, 26-year-old kid who had such potential. He was capable of so much more than he had done, but capable of so much more than he was ever going to do because now he's going to prison for life. And it was funny because, and I told you the story about where I came from because I recognized some parts of Chris and me. Chris was self-taught, and so um, he had taught himself some Greek philosophy. And, you know, Greek names don't really, you don't really spell them the way they sound. And so he's pronouncing these names phonetically, and I'm trying to figure out, Socrates. Europides, who are you talking about? And then I realized I know who you're talking about because I did the same thing myself. When I started reading in the military, I didn't know how you pronounce these names. I went to the library and picked up books. I'm doing what you were taught in elementary school and how to read and, and plow through these things. And so I'm listening to Chris Young do the same thing that I had done, except I had opportunities that Chris Young did not have. And I thought, I can't do this. So... Um, you know, I did what I had to do and then said, I, I'm not doing it anymore. Um, 
you know, Congress, in their infinite wisdom, in their desire to be elected and reelected, wants to show how tough on crime they can be. And they say, look, mandatory minimums are necessary so that we can take this discretion away from the judges. And um, Judge Rakoff talked about this. It works. You do take discretion away from the judges. But you don't take away discretion. You just moved it. You just moved the discretion to the prosecutor who uh, has a dog in the hunt. They're going to decide how they charge this, and they're going to do it for their reasons, not in an effort to seek justice, but because we have this adversarial system. The, the discretion is still there. Congress says, um, we're in a baseball game. We don't think the umpire ought to be calling balls and strikes. We don't trust them to call balls and strikes on certain pitches. Um, let's get the catcher to do it. That, that, we think that's going to work. Well, that's, that's what they're doing. Let's get... You know, if somebody said, well, wait a minute, let's don't let the prosecutor do it. Let's let the defense counsel do it. They would say, you're insane. Why would you do that? I say, well, why would you do this? You've hired me, and you've, you've gone through some significant vetting of all of these federal judges, and you've asked them to do a job. You trust them to do the job. Uh, I, I spent a lot of hours with the lawyers from the Justice Department and in, in front of uh, a Senate um, Judiciary Committee and with White House lawyers and with the senators and other people who had a stake in whether or not I would be a good judge, and they decided that I would and then wouldn't let me do it, wouldn't let me do those things that, that you know, this is exactly why you've hired us. So, um, that for me became you know, un untenable. It was something that I could not do. And, and I was talking out in the hall with Clark because of it. And I will wrap this up. I know we've got to go. Um, but as I'm sentencing people, because of the way that I grew up, as, as I'm looking at criminal defendants come through, I'm thinking, man, I went to high school with that guy. I worked at the oil refinery with that guy. Um, you know, not they were just so similar. These were the people that that I recognized. They weren't abstract, um, you know, here's a, here's a piece of paper, how, here's what happened, how would you sentence this guy? These were real people. And, and real consequences happened based on what I said. And then I wasn't allowed to say what I think. I was told what to say. And I just became a messenger. And I, and I thought, I'm, you can get somebody else to be a messenger. Um, if, if real change is going to be made here, then I need to do that on the other side. And yes, it's a lifetime appointment, but okay, what am I, you know, am I going to walk in here every day and do these things that I don't think are just? That I don't think this is justice, and, and you can pay me for life to do that, but that's not enough. You don't pay me enough for this. Uh, you can't pay me enough for this. And so ultimately, um, that, that just became, ate at me too much. And um, the other thing that was going on with that as well, somewhat related, was what I saw so many of the criminal defendants, if you take out white collar mostly, but of everyone else that I saw, it, it's addiction and it's mental health issues. And we're not fixing those. You're, you're 
telling me to send these folks to prison and then you're gonna leave them there and you're not gonna give them the help that they need. You've got people with mental health issues who are self-medicating and, and end up addicted or you've got people with addictions who uh, have these mental health issues, they all feed on each other and it just gets worse and we're not doing anything to help. We're just locking people up and you can't lock enough people up. Um, you're never gonna fix it that way. There's, there's got to be a different way. We're not more safe. We're not more productive. Um, and we're certainly not a more just society. And so um, people tell me, you know, Kevin, you are crazy. Who leaves the bench? And, and what I tell them is, no, what I was doing up there seemed crazy to me. That's what seemed crazy. Not, not leaving a lifetime employment. Uh, uh, lifetime job. Um, so th that is my story, but I, th I also want to say this, and thank you all for what's been going on here, because this to me says, okay, there's not just a lone voice crying in the wilderness that this is wrong. There are real people talking about these issues, which is the only way that it's ever going to change. If we don't talk about it, if we don't come to some kind of at least get close to a consensus on what is it we're trying to accomplish? Are we just trying to separate a group of people from society? Or are we doing something else? Or, you know, what are, what are those things? If we agree on that, then we can sit down and we can have a conversation. Okay, how do we get from here to there, and, and that has to happen by people talking about it, people thinking about it, and that's what you're doing. Um, so thank you for inviting me here. Thank you for letting me witness what y'all are doing. Um, uh, I feel good about our future. Um, so thank you all uh, for inviting me. I wouldn't uh, even try to add anything to those remarks. I hope that all of you found them as inspiring as I did. There is only one thing uh, to do in closing, and that is to thank a number of people who have made this conference possible. Uh, as anybody who has ever organized or participated in a conference like this knows, when they're done right, they look very simple and everything moves smoothly on the front end, but there's a lot of effort and activity on the back end. So I want to start by thanking my colleagues Matthew Feeney, John Blanks and Trevor Burris, who were the, really the guiding force and the inspiration behind the conference. Uh, my assistant, Haley Geckel, uh, who um, provided a great deal of logistical support and did it with uh, her customary grace and efficiency. I also want to thank Cato's conference and events staff and the marketing staff for helping get the word out uh, so that we had the great attendance that we had. And last, I want to thank all of you, and I want to thank the panelists and speakers uh, that gave their time, their energy, and their insights to help us get to a better place to help us fulfill our moral obligation and our obligation as citizens to do better. We can do better, we must do better, and together we will do better. Thank you very much. <clears throat>